Y'all be seated. This morning we are jumping into our fall series. We're going to be spending the next couple months together looking at passages from Joel and Amos. Uh, But before I dive into our time together this morning, let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, I thank you for some time for us to gather this morning. Uh, It's overcast, and some of us were up really late last night, and we're really excited when we fell asleep, but then we woke up, uh, and we're here, and we might be a little groggy, and uh, we ask that you would help us, Spirit, to focus our attention attention now on, on words that were recorded under inspiration, shared with your people so many, many, many generations ago, but timeless words, words that are for your people across all generations. And we thank you that you have made us uh, those who are among that generation right now. We are your people, and we pray that you will help us uh, to spend time together this morning really enjoying, reflecting, and being challenged, Spirit, as you press this word into our hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to be spending the next two months looking at uh, Joel and Amos, and something for you to know about when you study uh, prophets, we're going to talk about prophets here in just a moment, Uh, we will be looking kind of holistically at the messages of these two prophets, but we're going to be looking at them thematically, because a lot of times prophecy doesn't lend itself necessarily to being like, well, let's look at this verse, and then we'll look at the next verse, and then we'll look at the verse right after that. Uh, Oftentimes, the way that the prophets share their message follows different themes. And so uh, Joel and Amos share a lot of the same themes, and so we're going to be looking at those themes over the next eight weeks together. So that's how we'll approach Joel and Amos. And I want us to spend this morning just kind of framing up what we're going to do for the next couple of months and orienting ourselves uh, to these prophets. I was reading this week, and I found a quote by a spiritual master from India, not a Jesus-following spiritual master, just a generic spiritual master. Uh, His name is Amit Ray, and he said this. He said, be brave, be free from philosophies, free from prophets, and free from holy lies. Go deep into your feelings and explore the mystery of your body, mind, and soul. You will find the truth. Like so, I'm betting that that's not your mantra. I'm just assuming That being said, what Amit Ray is actually saying, when he says this, he's saying, hey, you're going to be told that you need to listen to some holy lies coming from some holy book, or listen to some prophets, or you have to find some philosophy that you have to live by. No, you don't. You get to be your own philosophy, your own philosopher. You get to be your own prophet. You get to tell yourself your own holy lies, though he wouldn't say it that way. But technically what he's saying is be free from authority. Be free from spiritual authority. Don't let anyone tell you what you have to believe and how you have to live. Look inside yourself. Okay, so one thing I want us to to hear in that is that is not a new call, not a new mantra. It's actually the oldest mantra. Wouldn't you rather be like God than have to serve God? Wouldn't you rather be your own authority than having to live under his authority? And even though this, you know, Amit Ray's way of talking about his, his own personal philosophy, which is interesting, he's like, be free from philosophies, embrace my philosophy. Like, that's essentially what he says, which, but either way. Even if that's not where you would go, you wouldn't say, I want to, uh, how did he put it, I want to um, go deep into my feelings and explore the mystery of my body, mind, and soul. Even if you wouldn't say that, you and I do live 
by a lot of the principles that he's voicing here, just not the way he voices them. We don't want to live under authority. And when we study the prophets, we're, understand, we're, we're studying men, the words from men given to them by God. So it's God's words through those men to God's people, calling them to live under the authority of those very words. This is the way that, um, that you know, prophet, the, the role of the prophet is described in Scripture. So it happened, we find it in Deuteronomy. Uh, God is talking to Moses about how he's going to continue to provide prophets for his people. And he says this in Deuteronomy 18. He says, I will raise up for them, I'll raise up for my people a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So when we talk about the biblical prophets, a biblical prophet is God's appointed spokesman, and he's going to deliver God's authoritative word to God's people. That's what a prophet does. And I want us to make sure before we move on and look at Joel and Amos, like the fact that God gives prophets is gracious. God doesn't have to give us his word. He didn't have to ever give people a word from him. He could have just washed his hands of us. But because God is gracious, we have a, essentially, we have the history of prophets coming and speaking definitive words to God's people. And then we have that continued as God's new prophets, the apostles, give us the word in the New Testament so that we can hear from God. As his people, we want to hear from him. He graciously shares with us. Now, Joel and Amos were two such prophets, and they spoke the word of God to the people of God. And in their words, God speaks to us as well. Because God's prophets spoke to a specific people in a specific context, but though they were finite beings and though they were prone to change, the men, the God whose word they shared never, never changes, which means when he speaks truth to one generation, it is truth for all generations. Now, sometimes there are components of prophecy that are tied temporally to certain specific outcomes in history, but the principles apply far beyond that because God never changes. And some of the things that the prophets talk about, which we're going to look at today, are concepts well beyond, and they look to a future day, a day that we have not even yet experienced. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to jump into these two prophets, and then for the next two months, we're going to dive into specifics of what they say and see how that translates to our lives as well. So this morning, we're going to answer three questions just to get ourselves oriented. Who were Joel and Amos? Do they have anything of relevance to say to us? And then what's the major theme of their message that we're going to be exploring over the next couple months? So we're going to answer those three questions today pretty quickly. And first, who were Joel and Amos? Well, if you look, if you look in Joel and you look in Amos at the beginning, uh, we're told that the first verses of their recorded prophecies help us understand who they were. So Joel 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So little else is known about Joel. He's the son of Pethuel. That's really all we're given. And actually, when, if you study the book of Joel, which we will together, Joel is one of these prophecies that he also doesn't give us a lot of markers to put it in redemptive history to know exactly where it is in the life of God's people, which is why one commentator said, if you ever want to read a, uh, a prophet or a prophecy that is just universally applicable, Read Joel, because God intentionally shared it. Yes, it went to a specific people, but he did not tie it 
to a specific historical moment because the concepts of Joel are concepts that uh, intersect with every single uh, generation of believers, principally. And we know that's true of Amos and of all the rest, but what's unique about Joel uh, is outside of him talking about some locusts, we're not really sure historically where it was placed. Now, we would assume that Joel, as you read through Joel, you'll see that he's really aware of what's going on in the temple and the life of the priests, uh, the life of Jerusalem. And so more than likely, his contemporaries knew all about Joel just because he was a known commodity within that community. Uh, But for us, we just know he's the son of Pethul. That's what we know. Now, Amos, we're told in Amos 1.1, we're told that he's among among the shepherds of Tekoa, uh, which is a region uh, there in Judah. And so, we know a little bit more about Amos, but not a lot. We know he either was a shepherd or he was wealthy enough to uh, outsource two shepherds. We're not sure exactly which it is, but we know that 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 agrarian lifestyle was his lifestyle uh, and that the Lord gave him a word, a a vision, because we're told that Amos was shown something, shown the word, meaning that he was given a vision that he shared with God's people. We also know that he, he was sharing uh, his prophecy during the reign of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam II of Israel, which is the same time as Hosea. So we know historically kind of where we can find that in the timeline. Uh, but one thing I want us to understand, this is an important note for us, is that we are not called to actually study and know a whole lot about the men who share the prophets, uh, prophecies. Because prophecy is not about the prophet, it's about the one who has shared the message, and we're supposed to focus on the word that they share. The prophets uh, were, were actually oftentimes just not super well-known individuals, uh, and even when they became one well-known, it was more like notoriety, right? It was like, it was essentially like the king hated them a lot of times. Like they were not beloved individuals, but they had a word from the Lord they had to share with God's people, and so they felt the burden, and they shared it with God's people. It's not about the man, it's about the message. I just want to take a moment and say, whether you, I'm not sure what you believe about the ongoing gift, spiritual gift of prophecy uh, in the New Testament church. I'm not sure what you, there's a, whole, there's a whole host of things that you can hold to that I think are biblical, uh, and we could discuss those at length at some point, not today, but at some point we could. Um, but one thing I want us to note is the self-proclaimed and I say that, I don't, I don't mean to be negative, but I'm, I mean to be honest. Self-proclaimed prophets of our day oftentimes make a lot about who they are. They really want us to see them, their lifestyle, know them, celebrate them, and then share a word with us. That should be a red flag for us. Anyone who says, I'm a prophet, pay attention to me, look at me, instead of someone saying, I'm burdened to share a word of the Lord with you, look at what God has said, One of those follows a biblical model. The other one is uh, essentially self-serving. And any time a prophet presents himself as self-serving, we should be really skeptical. So just, no matter what your personal personal convictions are on the ongoing office or the ongoing gift of prophecy, just remember, prophets always spoke to God and pointed to him. And a prophet who makes it a lot about themselves that you should actually be very, very skeptical at that point. So that's a freebie. I just thought this is a great time to share it. So there you go. Let's answer the second question now. Did Joel and Amos have anything of relevance to say to us? 
If we don't live in that day and age, we don't live in that community, we don't live in that community during that time or, or even geographically right now. So do Joel and Amos have anything of relevance to say to us? And I'm going to quote, uh, it's a lengthy quote here from one of the commentaries that I've been studying, but I think it's really helpful. And this particular, this applies specifically to Amos, but the themes of Amos and the themes of Joel are tied together. Um, And so he's, uh, David Allen Hubbard wrote this as he was reflecting on the setting uh, of Amos. He said this, abuse of power in the social realm and compromise with paganism in the religious realm were the two besetting sins which Amos denounced. Again, that's abuse of power in the social realm and compromise with paganism in the religious realm. Those are the two besetting sins that he is addressing in the life of God's people there in Israel and Judah. He goes on and says, A particular fault were the powerful, the landed, meaning, meaning those who own land, had access to resources, the wealthy and the influential. In short, the leadership who had not only seduced the underprivileged from obedient worship of Yahweh, that's the covenant name for God, but had conscripted their lands, confiscated their goods, violated their women, and cheated them in business along the way. These are all different layers of abuse that those that had power, how they were leveraging their power amongst the visible people of God. And then he goes on and says this, the lion-like roar which Amos talks about when the lion roars, who will not be afraid? He's talking about, the, about God roaring out at his people. The, he says, the lion-like roar was a divine no, shouted uh, through the prophet at every basic component of Israel's political, social, economic, and religious life. So here's what he's saying. Here's what Hubbard's saying. He's saying when we read Amos, we see God calling out among his own people, all forms of abuse, all these forms of abuse and neglect and compromise. And he goes on and he says, and it shows up in the areas of politics, the areas of society, of economy, and religion, all of life. So God is speaking a word to his people about every basic component of political, social, economic, and religious life. So God has something to say about every facet of our lives, and he's calling us out in every facet. When we think about that, those areas that are being highlighted uh, by Amos and then echoed in Joel, we're seeing areas where, yes, we look at, at Israel and we look at Judah and we're like, all right, well, their, their world was at odds with God in these areas, and our world is at odds with God in these areas. But we have to remember that when, when the nation state of Israel and Judah are looking at their world, they're also looking at the people of God. And so we can't just sidestep and be like, the world then and the world now is going to hell in a handbasket. No, we have to see that God's calling out his people and saying, this is active in your life, you visible people of God, which means now we're the visible people of God. So we have to think about how God is challenging us. Where are we at odds with God politically? Where are we at odds with God socially or economically, especially religiously? I was talking to some folks, um, some new friends that I've made recently uh, about, and they have sort of a, they've had sort of an insider track when it comes to national politics, and, and they were just talking to me about, man, the tribalism in politics at this point is, is so ugly, so divisive. That doesn't look like what God calls us into. Siding with people regardless of conviction, regardless of what he says, 
Unless what you mean by tribalism is God's people versus everybody else, and we don't ever even want to use that kind of language, the versus everybody else, because we're missional people. God's people seeking everybody else should actually be the two tribes. But that's not what we see. We see division and anger. We see slander. We see dishonor. We see disrespect. But here's the challenge for us. We also slander, and we show dishonor, and we show disrespect. Like these are things that are existing in us as the people of God. Uh, for us at FPO, sure, but also the, the church at large. We see this in the church, and it, it's at odds with who God is and what he's about. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't vote your conscience. God obviously calls you to vote your conscience. But how you interact over issues of conscience and issues of politics speaks to whether or not you actually are in alignment with God on how to interact with these things, how to engage them. Socially, when we think about where we are socially, just as the people of God, we're, we struggle just as much with self-centeredness. I mean, one of the, the challenges of being a part of the people of God in the South uh, is, it is just, it's a cultural thing still. It's very easy to just be culturally a part of the church, which is why there are so many inauthentic relationships. There's so much posturing. That's why oftentimes we, we present our lives in a unique way on Sundays because we feel like we need to. We can't be vulnerable with people on Sundays because this is a place where you come to show who you are, not really, but who you wish that you were. And that inauthenticity is because we actually have some social brokenness in the way that we behave and interact with folks within the family. We think about uh, our economic lives. We struggle with greed. We struggle with fear. We're financial and resource hoarders. It's not just out there. It's, it's in here as well. Self-interest grabs at us as well. And in our religious life, we, we have to fight against neglect in our religious life, in our spiritual life, our life with Jesus. We have to fight against compartmentalizing. Paganism in our day and age is relegation of spiritual life to its own box. You can believe whatever you want to believe as long as it doesn't intersect or mess up anybody else's choices in life. So keep your religion in your box, and we'll keep our religion in our box. That's the new form of paganism. And we are drinking the Kool-Aid because we, have, we actually are comfortable with having our religious life just be segregated off to the side because we don't want an authority to talk to us about politics or to talk to us about our spiritual life or our social life, or our economic choices. So we're actually really comfortable with the current form of paganism. And so we've embraced it. And we're being called out through Amos and Joel. And so for us, we just have to ask ourselves an honest question. Where is my heart, where are, is my life at odds with God? And if you're not sure, it's not that your life isn't at odds with God. And I just want to, I actually want to encourage you, every one of us, can answer that question in some way, shape, or form with an affirmative, yes, there's an area of my life that's at odds with God because we're all being sanctified. But we need that authoritative word from God to come and call us out so that we'll actually see and acknowledge where that issue exists. I got to keep moving here, but I just want to encourage you that, hey, wherever your lives show a lack of alignment with God on any of these fronts, you can know that God's going to help you see it. Like, if you actually desire to know where your life is at odds with God, he'll show you. Ask him. Ask him to show you. 
All right, with the last few minutes before we transition and approach the table together, I want to think about the, the theme, the major theme of Joel and Amos, and it's the day of the Lord. That's the major theme uh, that we see in both of these books, especially in Joel. And they're not unique to Joel and Amos. We see them in Zephaniah, and I think it's also Isaiah as well, and other places. The day of the Lord was a, it was a known concept among God's people. It's a theological concept. It's also talking about a day that is coming. So in a sense, there's like, there is a, a day when God will come and make all wrongs right, right, the final judgment. But in another sense, it's a concept, meaning that God sort of, um, and there's a rhythm of God engaging his people and bringing uh, punishment and discipline to call them back into faithful living. And that's an experience of the day of the Lord as a concept. Now, the popular thought of the day amongst God's people, when regardless of where Joel was, what part of the historical timeline Joel's speaking into, and also for Amos, the popular thought of the day is the day of the Lord is good news for his people and bad news for their enemies. That was the popular thought. And so here we have Joel and Amos speaking a word into that popular thought. Look here with me at Joel 1, 14 and 15 there in your worship folder. Joel says, Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. So here we have Joel calling the people of God to repentance because the day of the Lord is coming and that is a day that they should say, alas, because it's coming and we stand at odds with God. So it's a challenge for them. Hey, the day of the Lord, you want to believe it's a good day for you and a bad day for your enemies. It's a bad day for anyone who's out of alignment with who God is, what he loves, and living under his lordship. And if we think, well, yeah, that. that that may be the case. Well, let's, let's also look at Amos. Amos makes, makes it very clear for us. He's talking to the people of God and, and Israel specifically. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. And this is where like, they would desire, like, yeah, bring a good day for us and a bad day for our enemies. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom and no brightness in it? Whew. Like, that's heavy. He's saying you thought it was going to be good, but you actually are not living. Your heart is not united to your God. Why would you want this day? It's a day of judgment for you. Because there's no repentance in you. It's heavy. There's a heaviness here as they share uh, these sobering words for God's people, because they're God's people in name only. Their hearts are not His. He's not their Lord, and so they're being called to repentance. So for us, I want us to think about um, like a very simple concept that comes from understanding the day of the Lord. That's that our day, the day of the Lord means that God judges sin, that God takes sin really seriously. He cares about purity. He cares about holiness. He cares about us and our holiness and he's broken and angry over our sin. So we have to ask ourselves, do we take sin seriously? Have we neglected our faith and made it a narrow set of activities and, and so doing, we're like, yeah, I'm doing this well, but I'm not giving any thought to all the rest of the avenues of my life and where there's a lack of alignment with the Lord and rebellion against him. Have we become a generation who takes Jesus and grace for granted? Are we just Christians in name only? 
Or are we living with Jesus as our Lord? The day of the Lord. It's like you're running from a lion and you meet a bear. Or you think you're safe in the house and you get bit by a serpent. Don't be lulled into thinking just because you're a cultural Christian, just because you have affiliated with the church, you grew up in the church, or whatever it may be, if it's name only, the day of the Lord is darkness for you because God takes sin incredibly seriously. Now, there's also a grace found here. If we look at Amos 3, 8, that's where it talks about how when the lion roars, who will not be afraid? But when the lion roars, the lion roars, when God roars, it's a warning of judgment. What's implicit in a warning? Opportunity for response. Warnings allow you to respond. Execution does not. It's a warning. So there's a grace there. It's a warning of judgment. It's a calling to repentance. It's an invitation to repentance. And it's also a promise that on the other side of repentance is restoration. And that's the arc of the gospel. We have to know that there's bad news, that there's judgment for our sin because our sin actually separates us from God, either eternally or once you're a follower of Jesus, it creates estrangement relationally. And God takes that seriously, but he also invites you to respond with repentance and promises you that on the other side of that is once again that closeness of relationship or that first birth into the relationship if you're not already a follower of Jesus. And so that's where we're going over the next two months. We're going to be looking at this gospel arc, and it may feel a little uncomfortable because three out of the next seven weeks, we're going to be talking about judgment because there's a lot that Amos and Joel say about judgment, and we have to take sin seriously. Now, we don't want to wallow in that. We don't want to become overcome by that and overwhelmed by that, but we have to be honest about it because the gospel is good news when you actually have clarity on the bad news. The gospel's just news if you don't think you need it. We have to know we need it. So we'll be talking about judgment for the next three weeks after this. And then we'll spend two weeks talking about repentance, what we see about repentance in Joel and Amos. And then we'll close our series with two weeks talking about restoration. So that's where we're going as we study Joel and Amos together. We want to follow the gospel arc. Because when the lion roars, you can hear a warning, but also a loving invitation to run back to him to confess your sins, and to know that he is faithful and just, and he forgives you of your sins. And we're going to celebrate that truth at the table in just a moment. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for some time to, to start orienting our minds and our hearts to Joel and Amos and the things that you have said uh, through those servants of yours. You're saying them now to us, this current generation of your people, but you've said them to every generation since they were first spoken. And we thank you for that. We do acknowledge to you, we do confess to you, we don't take our sin nearly as seriously as you do, and we're a little scared to. And so we need you to roar. We need to hear that no and that calling, calling out but calling to. We pray that you will do that work in our hearts as we study together over these next handful of weeks. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.